0: Hebrews 10, we're in that last major section. I split it up into a few different sections, verses 19 through 37, I believe. Um, excuse me, 39. I split it up into three, uh, well, four sections. And I want to remind you of the way we split this, these sections up. Because what they say, their structure, speaks volumes to what the point is. Um, And I want to add something to those those names of those sections that we gave to help us along today. Because I thought a lot about this. And this section is so interwoven and tied together that it's just nearly impossible to come about it like... Get uh, two verses this week, three verses, five verses next week or whatever, because it just the first section is so important for the second section. And the second section doesn't make any sense without the first section. And then the last section just really is emphasized by the first two sections. And it just makes more sense. And the point is more effective when you see it in a whole. So I want to reestablish these sections and name them. And then and we're going to take a big picture approach today. A 3, 3, 30,000 foot approach to uh, what's happening in this passage. And really in the context of real life. For the original audience, but also for us today. Um, so I'm going to read each section And then break them up so you can see what we're dealing with. And then I'm going to give you a title for each section. Starting in verse 19. This is the beginning of our first section of this passage. And then down all the way to the end of that paragraph, which is 25. And this is going to be, this is what we call the exhortation or the strong encouragement. But this is the word I want you to tag onto this. You can even write it in your Bible in the the margins. And I think it might be a good idea to have that there. Write this word, promise. By that first paragraph. Write the word promise by that first paragraph. And then you see, let's read that one. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So that's our first section of exhortation, and we're going to title it Promise. Now our next section is 26 through 31, and we, we, we looked at it and said that that was going to be a caution or a warning, but this is the, this is the word I want you to put next to it in, a, in the margin of your Bible or in, or in your notes. For this warning, I want you to remember the word peril. P-E-R-I-L. Peril. Which is another word for saying problem. Let me read it. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again... The Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's peril. Now, the, uh, the third section starts in 32. And I don't I have a sort of a messy ending spot. But I'm going to go ahead and read to 35, 35. Oh, we'll do 36. And this was sort of application uh, I don't have a fancy word for this one. I just wrote, this is where the rubber meets the road. Okay? This is where uh, the sheep are separated from the goats. We'll just say it that way. Verse 32, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened... You endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to the reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plunder of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. That's the end. That's where the rubber meets the road. Now, the conclusion is the last three verses. It's a transition into the next cha- next section, but it is more of a a call to um, a call of to respond, a call to, of how to live. Verse 37, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Let's pray. Father, take your word. And bring forth fruit. We know that our lives, our flesh, our fame, our money will all fade away. But you and your word will endure forever. And so help us to endure in the spirit of Christ. For his sake. Amen. So I'm going to do this backwards. See how it goes. I want to begin by understanding what is happening in the application section because it is very, very important for getting the exhortation right and avoiding the things in the warning, right? Like I said, it's where the rubber meets the road. So let's understand what's going on. And I want to do this by sort of extracting the truths, the realities in that section and giving them to you in a, in, a, in a bit of a story form. Okay? And I want you... I'm talking about you. The main character in this story is you in the time of these people. Okay? So it's the year 55 AD, around about. You wake up one morning and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is still a very fresh memory. You never saw the resurrected Christ, but you heard many eyewitness accounts. You'd heard the apostle preach of Jesus. You heard of how he was killed on a Roman cross, but that he rose from the dead and that God has highly exalted him at the right hand as Lord and Savior. And he did this to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sin. You heard the apostle teach of the the sonship of Jesus. That he was the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. And in hearing these teachings, you were cut to the heart. And you did not you did not know what to do other than to cry out to God for mercy. For the forgiveness of your sins. And you cried out in faith. Faith in the death of Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And since your profession of faith, since this had happened, since your conversion, you'd been the butt of a few jokes in the marketplace, even from some friends and family. Kind of poking fun at you, worshiping and following a crucified uh, Savior, Um, but nothing you couldn't shake off. But you also had begun, after your conversion, to meet with a local community of believers for fellowship and worship. It began to be your regular habit because that's uh, what you were drawn to after you had uh, followed Christ. And today, as you wake up, it's no different from any other day, especially the first day of the week where it become your habit of meeting with the other believers in your local community. Um, It's the Lord's Day. You set it aside for worship, teaching, breaking of bread and fellowship. But something was going to be different that day. And it began with the fact that you woke up and your child had fever and you were unable to go because they couldn't get out of bed and you had to you had to stay home and take care of your sick child. And so uh, as you're staying home, you send your word off with your neighbor to the church to give them news of your absence, but also to ask them to pray that your child uh, would receive the mercy of God. But as the day passed, you began to find yourself checking the window to see if your neighbor had come home. You wanted to hear of the message that came from uh, the teaching at church that day and to see how all the brothers and sisters were doing. But more time goes by, and the end of the day was drawing near, and your neighbor had not returned. It was just about sunset, and you hear a knock at the door, and it was your neighbor, but it wasn't at the hour that you expected. It was later. But as soon as you opened the door and saw your neighbor's face, you instantly knew that something was wrong. Something was not right, and the message that you heard was not the message that you'd hoped to, uh, that you had hoped to hear in his return from the gathering. And he recounts the incident like this: He says, "As we began to gather all the all the saints, local authorities bursted into the home church." ordered us to stop what we were doing and gathered us to cease and never to return back to do this again. They took the homeowner into custody, seized many of the animals of the gathering worshipers and threatened they would take more drastic measures if they continued to meet. And so you and your neighbor sit across from each other, not speaking, but both stunned in silence and not admitting it, But both thinking the same thing. Is this worth it? Is all of this worth it? Is Christ worth losing everything? So as you read Hebrews, you realize that this was the reality of the recipients of this letter. This is what they were dealing with. This is what we see in verses 32 37 they were publicly after making a profession of faith they were publicly exposed to insults and distress there was much suffering they it was they themselves or some maybe someone they knew their friends or their family some of them had even been imprisoned for their faith in christ not only that they were losing their property illegally being confiscated because that they were christians And as you read, especially the the remainder of Hebrews, you you get the sense that the author of Hebrews wants them to know this isn't going to end. This is going to continue. And there's no doubt in my mind, and, and if you read Hebrews, you probably get the sense too, that there are some in this community of people who received this letter or heard this sermon, there are some who had left them, who had said, This is not worth it. Or they said, I'm going to go back to Judaism because things weren't as weird when we were doing that. Or they said, you know what? We're just not going to meet. We're going to decide that we're going to do our own thing and follow Christ without meeting together with the local uh, assembly of believers. They decided that it just wasn't worth it. And this is the point of this letter. This is one of the main reasons that this sermon was preached or sent. He wanted them to understand that as they felt the mounting pressures to return to the old ways and to deny deny Christ, he wanted to remind them of this great salvation, chapter 2, and not neglect it. He wanted to call them to hold fast even amidst persecution. He wanted to remind them that they must take care of one another, lest some of them fall away because of an evil, unbelieving heart. He wanted to show them that there is confidence and a future hope in Christ because He's the great high priest. He wanted to show them that the old ways that they might want to return to were vanishing away, were weak and useless he wanted them to remember to, to remain steadfast in the true high priest, the one and only perfect sacrifice of the Son of God. And see, that there's only really two options to that scenario. Shrink back or live by faith. Fall away or endure. That was the options. If there's one word that, gives you an understanding of the point of Hebrews 10 especially these last this last half of the chapter not to mention of the book of Hebrews and even more so the theme of what ought to be your life in Christ and that one word is endurance endurance consider the many ways the Christian life is described in the scriptures it's always something that takes endurance a walk, a run, a path, a fight, a battle. Every aspect or every way that the Christian life is described, it's a way where you, you must stand fast and not give way. You have to finish the course. That's the Christian life. And the reality of the Hebrews is that they had come to a fork in a road. And we come to forks in the road every day. Every day we have the option to go left and take the simple, easy way. Or go right and take the complex, difficult, bound for struggle way. The way that takes endurance. But the thing about those two ways is they're deceiving. The easy way... The relaxing way takes you to a town called peril. And the hard way, the way of endurance takes you to the town called promise. Now, if we were going to use words that come from our text, peril is another name for a fury of fire. An expectation of judgment to be destroyed by God, while promise is literally the presence of God in the Holy of Holies, the throne room of God. And so the writer of Hebrews is wanting them to understand you either endure and receive the promise or take the easy way out and end up in peril. Now, got to know this about hebrews you got to know this about hebrews 10 if you when you hear the word peril fury of fire fearful expect, expectation of judgment the adversaries of god you have to understand that he is not talking about unbelievers the message of hebrews 10 is for you in the pews you come to wise in the road forks in the road, you as a professing Christian will have opportunity to take the easy way to peril or the hard way to promise. If you choose the easy way to peril, it's not just going to be bad at the end. It's condemnation, judgment, and damnation for us who sit in the pews. This is a separation of the sheep from the goats, the wicked from the evil. The only thing is is that the division takes place in these walls. Just because you come here and say I'm a Christian just because you attend church does not mean you've inherited any promise. And here's the thing, life, life is going to reveal which way you're going. It will reveal the truth of your profession, just like it had done with these believers that's received this letter. He sets before them the way of promise and the way of peril. But then he tells them in this rubber meets the road section, you have already endured Right. He says, but you've already passed and you're already suffering for the sake of Christ. So we must understand that this is a warning to the church, to the professors of faith. Uh, but so what is the why in the road for them? It's persecution, right? It's. The ridicule, the reproach, the affliction, potential prison, uh, the plundering of your properties—like this was real for them, and it was all because they said, "I'm a Christian." But here, let me ask you this: Are you expecting that today? No, you're not. You're not expecting today uh, for you to go home and that your animals have been taken because you are a Christian. Or the fact that you might get taxed more next year because you are a Christian. At this very moment, that is not a reality for you. But it is for these these people who have received this letter Persecution comes and the question comes about to their minds, is this worth it? Is this worth it? Look at verse 36. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised you do the will of God, you will receive what is promised. So what's the will of God for these believers? What are they supposed to do? What is the way of promise? Well, it's verses 19 through 25. And last week we looked at 22, drawing near to God with a true heart and a full assurance of faith. But verse 23, they have to ask themselves, is it worth it? Should we hold fast? The confession of our hope without wavering? Should we continue to meet together? Or should we abandon it all? Should we turn? Should we run? Should we seek easy life away from the persecution? But the way of the promise is to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. The the. The way to the promise is not neglecting to meet together as in the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And again, you might be thinking, but Luke, that has nothing to do with us because we're not under any sort of persecution at this time. Well, first and foremost, persecution exists in the church today. Um, We might not see it in America but you go to South America, you go to India, you go to Africa, you go to China. And the reality is is that people are dealing with this thing, these things, but also potentially losing their lives for this sake. Uh, but he- here here's where I really want us to stop and think about this as we um, move forward. because we don't we don't we don't have to endure suffering at this moment. But what we have to face is as equally dangerous, and that's prosperity. You're not going to go home and be fearful of your life because you're a Christian. You're going to go home and you're going to be – the world is going to attempt to deceive you to think that your life is worth saving. That you need more of what you already have. I'm confident that persecution and prosperity will bring you to the same fork in the road. Just as these Hebrews faced the fork in the road that said, die for Christ or continue in Christ. We come to the same fork in the road when it comes to prosperity, and it's live for ourselves. Or die to Christ. So let me give you just an example. Imagine imagine yourself as a first century Jewish shepherd. You've been converted and you follow Jesus, right? You've made a profession of faith, uh, but you're getting pressure from the local tax collector. He he knows you're a Christian, but he keeps increasing your taxes for it, and he's taking what is lawfully yours. Uh, He knows, or you know, that if you're less visible in your faith, perhaps not even attend church, just stay home, that maybe the tax collector and his soldiers will forget about you and leave you alone. Well, what's happening there? What's happening? Well, look back at verse 22. If you decide, if you decide to take it easy to be a quiet Christian, you're going to fail in number in verse 22, drawing near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. And that key word there is faith. And then the thing that's going to follow thereafter is verse 23, is you're going to lose hope. Because you're not willing to hold on to any hope if you're concerned about what you might lose in the now, in the near future. But the third thing that you neglect or you lose if you decide to live a safe, less visible life in Christ is you lose the opportunity to be drawn to love others into good works. All this gathered around the meeting together of the assembly of the saints. Notice these three consequences. A weak faith, a lack of hope, and missed love. These are the three virtues of a Christian. Faith, hope, and love. Love. Now, there's an obvious conclusion that we have to come when we are unwilling to draw near in faith, hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, and stirring up others by neglecting to meet together. The very conclusion we have to draw is verse 26 that says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. For sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries of God. So here's the connection I want you to understand, and you're not gonna like this. The encouragements, the exhortations that we receive in verse 22, 23, 24, and 25 are all centered around the covenant community of the body of christ we draw together as one let us draw together let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works not neglecting to meet as the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. And you can say, because of persecution, I can't do these things anymore. Well, he says, and then in verse 26, the obvious conclusion that you have to draw is if you're not going to do those things with the assembled saints, the other result is this. You're going to go on sinning deliberately. You're going to fall into the hands of the living God. To neglect 22, 23, 24, and 25 is to set yourself up for eternal destruction. And that's the only conclusion you can come from here. As he makes this transition from the exhortation to the warning. Because he tells you, do these things, do these things, do these things. And then in verse 26... For if we go, the, other, the only, other, only other way is to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Look, look back at chapter 3. Starting in verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to test and saw my works for 40 years. So there's a warning to you. Don't harden your heart. Right. Verse 10. Therefore, I I was provoked with that generation and said they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. And so of all of that concern. He he doesn't say, go read your Bible more. He doesn't say, pray more. He doesn't say, there's no magic potion. He gives you the only thing that is there for you as a community. A covenant community. Verse 12. Take care, brothers. Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another... Every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be deceived or that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ. For we have come to share in Christ. Go back to 10. Verse 23. Let us hold fast. The confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another. To love and good works. And this is all going to be coming out of one thing. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together. If you are in the habit of of neglecting the gathering of the saints you will become or you will you will come into the habit of neglecting the Lord there's no way around it you cut off the head the body dies now Someone who is neglecting the gathering of the body for whatever reason, persecution or for the sake of prosperity. That old old, uh, sheep farmer, that shepherd, he he was going to neglect the gathering of the saints because he was concerned about losing his sheep. We neglect the gathering of the saints because we're we're concerned about making more money or attending the sheep. Right? Right? I, I idolize my, my livestock so much that I can't make it to church on Sunday. Prosperity. Or um, life's so good that we play so hard on Saturday that we're too tired to get up on Sunday. We're that prosperous that we can play ourselves to such a stupor on Sunday morning that we would neglect the gathering of the saints, the worship of our Lord see we're not there yet this persecution aspect we could be pretty soon but if we can't handle it during the prosperity we're not going to handle it during the persecution you know what Jesus says uh, in the parable of the sowers we read it during Sunday school Listen, listen carefully as for, the, as for um, the one that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet yeah, he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on the count of the word, immediately he falls away. What does he fall away from? When tribulation and persecution arise, not just regular tribulation and persecution but it arises because he's a christian but the interesting thing about that parable is we don't really get that one because we don't really live that one that we do live the next one jesus says right after that as for what was sown among the thorns this is the one who hears the word but the cares of the world not persecution Not suffering, not trials, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches, prosperity. Choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Cares of the world and the deceitfulnesses of riches. We neglect the gathering of saints, the worship and the fellowship of the body of the Christ because we are overcome by the things of the world. We work so hard all week. The weekends are a relaxing time, our comfort, our play. You know, if you go to church, you lose a quarter of your weekend. Seriously. If you come to church, you've just, you've sacrificed a quarter of your weekend. That's a lot. It's more than an hour, especially go here. You see, that's the world would say, Why do you suffer that way? Why do you give up a quarter of your weekend for hang out with a bunch of imperfect hypocrites? That's that's why we're here. And that's why we need to be here. All in all, in our day and age, we're no different from that old shepherd who buckles under persecution we think church is optional and the worship and the fellowship of the body of christ is just supplemental like a vitamin it's not absolutely necessary for our spiritual health i will i will say this let's see if i can say this right because it's not in my notes Going to church does not make you a Christian. But if you ain't going to church, I'm going to have a hard time saying that you are. Because what happens to the sheep that wanders from the flock? And gets eaten by the wolves. See God in His infinite wisdom has created this not so that we could say, "Oh, we're we're Christians; we come to church," but that so you can grow into Christ individually and collectively. That's why that's why the Scripture calls us a body. Because we're made up of many members. And you're like. Well I'm an arm. And I'm just going to hang out over here. It doesn't work that way. You need one another. I'm telling you this. You need one another. You need to come here. And to be equipped. And edified. And built up. And you also need to in turn. Encourage and build up. Your fellow brothers and sisters. We must not neglect to meet together. All right. There's three things I want you to say. I want to say uh, really fast. Number one. Jesus is better. Uh. He's better than everything. You give me one thing, I'll tell you, Jesus is better. He's better than big bank accounts. He's better than um, three, three bedroom houses. He's better than great grandbabies. He's better than mothers and grandmothers. He's better than a prosperous country. He's better than all the wealth in the world. Jesus is the treasure in the field. He's the pearl of great price. He's better than the breath in your lungs. Look at verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison and joyfully accepted the plunder they joyfully accepted the plunder of their property and yet we worked tirelessly To keep ours, but he says, "Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, Jesus, not just a better possession, an abiding one, meaning he ain't going nowhere." Jesus is better. So I implore you this morning to give up everything for him. Treasure him as your greatest possession, even more than your own life. Love him more than your mother, your father, your brother, your children, your job, your cattle, your bank account, your health, your truck. Love him more than life itself because he is altogether lovely and infinitely more valuable than all of those things combined. The second thing is, Prepare yourself to suffer for him. Prepare yourself to suffer for Jesus' sake. Because if you, as Romans 8 says, are not ready to suffer with him, then you cannot be glorified with him. If you are not willing to suffer with him, you cannot be glorified with him. Look at the end of verse 25 understand that the context of all of this is coming the coming day of Christ the coming day of Christ but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near so if the day is drawing near and you have prosperity keeping you before up from him you will then expect the fiery judgment And the fury of fire. If the day is drawing near and you are being kept from him by the potential possibility of persecution, you will expect a fearful, fiery judgment and be consumed by God. Do not let persecution or prosperity hinder you from coming to worship. But for the sake of Christ, by seeking the treasure in heaven... Hold fast to Him and the future hope that you have in Him. Now, the final thing I want you to say, I want to say, and I think is the theme of of these these sections, is that you must, you must, in order to help you do number two, commit yourself to this local assembly of believers. That's what that's what verses twenty three and twenty four and twenty five are saying. And that's where the rubber meets the road in verses 32 through 35. The local church is a gift. It's a grace of God for you. The local church is the place where the saints gather together to worship God. It is a place where we're reminded of just how great this salvation in Christ is. The local church is where you're equipped and where you're built up, where you're taught how to worship, where you're taught how to fight, where you're taught how to love. But it's also a place where you encourage and help and teach others. So see Jesus for who he is, infinitely more valuable than anything. Seek him and be prepared to suffer for him. And be prepared and equipped to do that very thing here in this local assembly. And this evening, I hope to work that last one out a little bit more, and I want to convince you tonight that this, uh, that covenant commitment to a local church, is crucial to the Christian life. It's crucial. Let's pray.